Now, as we uh, reach this section, this comes on the heels of what we looked at last week. Now, last week was when Saul was on the road to Damascus. We remember he was still breathing murderous threats when suddenly Christ met him. A light shone from heaven and everything completely turned around. We saw that the grace of God is powerful to bring about utter transformation of the most extreme enemy in the moment that God pleases. God can meet a man who is dead set against his name and absolutely change him in a moment. And today what we're going to look at as, as we move now into Damascus. He has on the road met with Jesus. He has come to recognize everything he's been laboring for since the martyrdom of Stephen. That he had been inspired by and really made his sort of life ambition to destroy the name of Christ. Now suddenly he understands Christ is Lord and Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is risen. He is alive. There is salvation in him and in him alone. And everything is absolutely shattered. And as we take it up today, he is on the road and, and he is blinded by this light and will have to be led into Jerusalem. Now, I mean, into Damascus. Now, what I want us to do, we're going to take this in, in three different parts. Because uh, as, as we look at the disciples in Damascus, the first thing I want us to take a look at is Ananias. Ananias is the one that God is going to deal with to send him to Saul. To, to be used of God and to prepare him in part with an understanding of the calling that he will have. Then I want us to also see something remarkable revealed about our Lord. And then also lastly, we will look at some of God's dealings with Saul himself in this passage. So let's take it up initially with Ananias. Now, Ananias is not, a, is not a new name, though as we come to the New Testament, it, it's somewhat less familiar to us. But we have already heard of Ananias and Sapphira, and he went down. And what's interesting is uh, Ananias is a name that means, that speaks of how the Lord, how God has graciously given. <laughs> and so the first Ananias, who had been graciously given much by the Lord, kept back some for himself in a bad spirit. You know, it's the same name you see in the Old Testament under the name Hananiah. So not a new Jewish name, but simply uh, uh, bringing it forward for us. But what I want us to see as we begin to take this up, the first thing I want us to see about this man is the disciples' readiness. Okay? Look at his readiness with me, if you would, in verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. Here is a readiness, a ready response that, that God might meet him, that God would come to him with, an, with a will, with, a, with an instruction, with a commandment. And his readiness, the, that phrase, here I am, isn't to indicate location. It isn't that maybe God hasn't been able to find me and he's searching. That's not what's going on here. The, the here I am basically is here I am at your service. Here I am. What would you have of me? It is a self 
presentation phrase. You know, and it's not the first time that we see phrases like that. We see the readiness of Isaiah, for example. Many of you may be familiar with Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 8 and 9. It says this, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Always interesting to hear the whom shall I send and who will go for us. And we get confused, don't we? I, us, what's happening here? Is it, a, is it singular or is it plural? Well, we know that God is that mysterious three in one. One in three that continues to baffle the mind of men. But was even previously being revealed. More fully revealed when Christ came. And declared it. Particularly even when he set forth that beautiful baptismal formula. Right? Where he would say baptize them in the name. Singular. Of the Father. The Son. And the Holy Spirit. That, that amazing mystery. But he says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, then I said, here I am. Send me. Just a readiness. And God says to him in verse 9. And he said to him, go to this people and say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And he goes on from there. He's like, wait a second. What he just volunteered for is what? Whatever the Lord calls him to do. And what God is going to call Isaiah to do is a less, deliver a less than desirable message to the people. It's a message that they are going to rebel against. It's a message that will offend them and upset them. But he offered, here I am, send me. Not only that, we see a similar uh, circumstance happened and maybe you remember this when young Samuel is in the living in the temple in the presence of, of Eli and you remember Eli's sons were wicked fellas and God came and he's speaking to Samuel and, and each of the three times that, that he first says Samuel 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 gets up and runs into to Eli and says here I am and Eli finally figures it out. And it tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 3. In verse 9 it says this. Or the end of verse 8. Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Eli said to Samuel. Go lie down. And if he calls you. You shall say. Speak Lord. For your servant hears. Again that is a phrase of what? Yeah. You're the master. I'm the servant. You're in charge. I listen and do. You speak, I receive. I hope and pray that we never lose sight of that. Some people, I think, have even sadly in our day and age confused the notion of prayer as if they pretend prayer is that season where we get to flip the switch and turn things around. And now he has to listen to us and we tell him what to do. That's not what prayer is. <laughs> In prayer, we're calling out to him, bearing our heart for him, acknowledging our absolute and utter dependence upon him for all things. We can set forth our pleas, we can set forth our petitions, we can make intercession for the saints, but we do not dictate to God. We don't set God at obligation to our wants. But he indeed has every right and power and position 
to set us under his wants, under his desires. Now, I won't say under his whims, because such a word can never refer to God. <laughs> we have whims because our thoughts come in the moment, are reactionary. But our God and his infinite, almighty wisdom and perfection is not like us. And so we see that he, he responds in that way. And the Lord comes in verse 10 and stood and calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which the two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to the end. And what had he spoken concerning the house of Eli from beginning to end? Done. They're going to be killed. They're going to be crushed. So two times, the, and not accidentally, the ones I've drawn your attention to, the disciples' readiness, the instruction he's initially given by the Lord, is one that is less than desirable by the receiver. You know, we want to be appointed to positions that will maybe build our esteem before people, positions of advance, positions of prominence, maybe positions of safety and comfort, but that is not the circumstance here now he says here i am lord and the lord tells him what he's to do he's to go and speak to saul and so we move from the disciples readiness to sadly the disciples reluctance but let's not judge him too harshly because we may fall prey to the same circumstances from time to time where what God has determined for us is a little different than what we would have designed. A little different than what we desire. It says this in verse uh, 13 and 14 after he's told him he's to go and meet Saul. In verse 13 and 14 it says. But Ananias answered. Lord. I have heard from many about this man. And how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. You know, and again, this is partly challenging, and, and this, to me, it reveals something of our humanity. Is Ananias informing God of something he's unaware of? He knows very well. He, he knows better than anyone else the heart of Saul. He knew more uh, the hatred, the vitriol, the anger, and the brutality that was in him. He knew it better than anyone else. But he's still telling this man to go. But sometimes, you know, you know I, I remember being in circumstances and, and, and there being a, a troubled marriage and interacting with the husband and wife and saying, this is what, what God would have you do in this circumstance, in this relationship, to which their responses were often, yeah, but he's like this, you know, and until he changes, then I, so until he changes, you can't do what God has asked you to do in your marriage? Okay, the, see, now, if he asks you to do it and you want to shut him down because he's not worth it, I understand but if God asks you to do it, 
then you're answering to the worth of God, not the worth of the individual. And, and, and we, sometimes I think we need to get this clearer in our mind. And so it's almost as if, and, and we don't want to fall prey to this, if I just explain the dangers to God, if he really understood the predicament he's putting me into, then, then I'm pretty sure he would change his mind. Is that how it works? No, of course not. God knows exactly what he's doing. Now, God knows that Saul is no longer the Saul that was on the way. The Saul that has seen the light is a Saul that has changed. A Saul that was coming in, uh, with a spirit of destruction is now a person in utter dependence as he can't even see. Can't go anywhere. And he goes on in the second verse, verse 14. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. So what are, what are, uh, what are clearly the thoughts of an Ananias? This could go poorly for me. <laughs> you know, if I, if I go ahead and do this. I lay hands on this man. He regains his sight. That might mean he grabs hold of me. He arrests me. He takes me to prison. Yeah. Can we work out another plan? Can we work out another way? How many times do people think their plan might be better than God's? Their way might be better than God's. Go to a Christian bookstore. And go look through the church growth sections. <laughs> there are a multitude of individuals who have all kinds of instructions about how to do church. That completely ignores the one who is the head of the church. Which is Christ. Who has told us what is pleasing. And what we are to be committed to. Given us through the instruction. Preach the word in season and out of season. And we get moving and we're in a season where people say, you can't do that. I met with once a man who was uh, in India. He had just come from, they had gathered all of the different individual pastors from a mainline denomination into Mumbai to give them instruction moving forward. And their instruction in that particular mainline denomination, a denomination that exists here as well, told them, look, sermons should not exceed 12 minutes. Research tells us, it's like, what? Preach the word. In, that's the center point of the service. I mean, can you imagine? I, I, I think of this going into the nearest uh, high school or the nearest university and saying okay classes should not last longer than 12 minutes exams should not take longer than 12 minutes here's your sat you have 12 minutes what's what's going to be the result of that not good i mean either it's going to take 20 years to get a bachelor's degree or people are going to be graduating exceedingly deficient, which is probably how it would work out. And maybe how it already is working out to some extent. And, and you just think, no, this cannot be there. God is God. We listen to him. We do it his way. 
And people will say, no, no, no. Um, you can't just preach the gospel. You can't tell people that they're dead in their trespasses and sin. You can't tell Jesus, them Jesus is the only way because that offends them. What? So you're, so you're saying we'll be more effective if we weaken and compromise the gospel? Yes. No! No, you won't. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He warns us in Corinthians that it is the will of God that through the foolishness of the gospel that's preached to bring men to salvation. That's his design. And men will say it won't work. But they're wrong. They're misunderstanding that Jesus also said, listen, narrow is the way and few are those who will find it. They say, well, the only reason few are finding it is because we're making it too narrow. Let's make it wider and easy. And what does the scripture say? Jesus says, wide and easy is the path that leads to destruction. No good. Let God be God. We see the disciples' reluctance, and we can understand it. And we can look around, and we can see at times uh, Christians' discouragement as our culture increasingly becomes less Christian, less influenced by the word than maybe it seems to have been at seasons in the past. And it's heartbreaking, it's difficult, and people are trying to figure out ways to fix that. But in order to figure out ways to fix that, you go back to the word. And the word calls you to go out with boldness. So maybe the problem is that we've gone into seasons where we've considered evangelism, preaching, declaring the gospel. That's the work of professionals. That's the work of those who are hired and paid to do so. Is that how it works? No, that's not how it works. It is to be all of the saints. The leadership in the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But when we've, when we've turned it over to few, we're just doing it backwards. God help us. We see the disciples' reluctance. He's not the first one reluctant. When uh, God called Jeremiah, we see these words in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6 and following. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold... I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Excuses. Uh, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work out for you. <laughs> you know, you could do better. Yeah. Would that most pastors and missionaries had that in their hearts. God, you could do better. <laughs> but I'm going to do what you call me to do. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. But you could do way better than me. <laughs> Yes, what a great spirit that would be. Uh, but the Lord said to him, what? Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. In other words, okay, the important thing isn't for you to speak well. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to tell you what to say. You say that. There you go. As simple as that. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And he said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Again, that idea, how powerful is that? That's got to be the sense of calling. We preach the word, the word of God. 
We preach it with clarity. If necessary, we preach it with simplicity. The goal is not necessarily eloquence. The goal is not necessarily entertainment. The goal is a faithful communication of God's word. That it might be heard. That it might be understood. That it might be known. In Exodus... At the burning bush, God also meets with Moses, and we remember this, his reluctance. What did he say? Moses said to the Lord in four, chapter 4, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, what's he saying? I never was eloquent, and even right now, I don't feel any change happening. I don't feel like some particular powerful anointing that's fixing me for this. You got the wrong guy. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, I love this. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should speak. But then he still says, but he said, Oh, Lord, please send someone else. I mean, he was still reluctant. And I ask you this. Did God not send Moses? No, he still sent him. He gave him a little help with his brother, but he still sent him. Now, a little quicker than Moses, we go from the disciples' readiness and the disciples' reluctance to the disciples' response. Verse 17 of Acts 9. So Ananias went. So Ananias departed and entered the house. All right. So he, he said it. But then uh, God said, this is what I want you to do. And he did it. And, and, you know, this is what always should happen. Let me give you a few wrong examples. And I think the reason why you'll see why these examples are wrong. There are places where God has told someone to do something. And they did not do it. Different than Ananias. One example is Exodus chapter 5 verse 2. This is where Pharaoh has been told. The Lord has said let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh says in Exodus 5 verse 2. Pharaoh said who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. All right. Well, I mean, that, that's a viable statement. Who is he? I don't know who he is. That excuse only works for who? Unbelievers. For those of us who are believers... When we know that the word of God clearly in the New Testament gives us instruction, gives us direction, gives us commands, sets forth expectations. Can we say, who is the Lord that I should do what he says? No, it's the other way around, isn't it? We say, oh, I know the Lord. If it is the Lord who says it, I will do it. Now, again, we can understand the reluctance of Moses. He's going back where he had murdered someone, going back where he had abandoned the circumstances and family, going back where he might not be well received in Egypt. We can understand Samuel's reluctance because he's going to have to tell even to Eli, who he loves and appreciates, things that will break his heart. 
Ananias is, is, is not so much worried about offending uh, Saul as he is the danger he's putting himself in. But we all have our multitude of excuses. Further, in Jeremiah it says this, in uh, chapter 7, verse 23 and following. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God and you will be my people. And walk in all that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey me or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their hearts and went backwards, not forwards. I mean, that. in other words, we're not listening to God to do what he wants us to do. We're going to do it our own way. And, and I get scared sometimes in the world in which we live. It, it seems to some degree, under the title Christianity, at times, groups tend to, to not say, what does God say? What would he have me do? What is pleasing in his sight? What is the calling he has for us? This is the will of God, your sanctification. We are debtors to those who do not know, have not heard the gospel. And all of these wonderful instructions that call us how we are to live, and they kind of turn it around and they think, what do I want to get out of life? What am I interested in? What do I want to gain, hold on to, achieve? And instead of putting themselves to obey God, they set their desires forward and they say, God, this is what I want. If you want me to praise your name, this is what I want. Uh, how about sacrifices of praise and obedience? What's happening when we, we turn it all the way around? Ezekiel 36 tells us of how it's going to be and that promise pointing forward to the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 verse 27. It says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Oh, that wonderful new covenant promise when God puts his spirit within us and writes his law on our hearts and minds. And now we are inwardly caused by the fact that it is, it is our, our highest thought and our most earnest desire that we do what God wants us to do. Now we still remain human, so at times there can be a, a, a degree of hesitancy. But I do appreciate here in Ananias, he voices his fear, his trouble, his doubt. And God doesn't abandon. All right, you lose out, I'm sending somebody else. Doesn't do that. A right response would be more like we see in Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 20, verse 2 and 4, it says this. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos. And he says to him this. Listen what he says. Go. This was in our McShane reading this week for those who are reading. Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist. Let me uh, uh, briefly interpret that for you. Take off your clothes. And take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. And then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the son, uh, the king of Assyria, lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, 
naked and barefoot. And then it gets a little bit more expressive there. You can read that on your own. Uh, Isaiah chapter 20. Now, look at that. I think, um, what does God tell Isaiah to do? Now, does that sound comfortable? Does that sound desirable? I mean, it sounds terrible. And he's telling him to do this for how long? Three years. I think, oh, no. Now, I, so I want to say this. Even if what God might ask seems absolutely ridiculous to our own expectation and seems even unreasonable, if God has clearly said it, what do we do? We do it. Now, note this. God has not told you and me to do what he told Isaiah. All right? That was unique to him. At that time. And even then you think of it. It's he did that. To be a, a, a living sign and example. To these others. Of what they would face. Can't I just tell them. Can't, I mean let me just. It's going to be bad. I mean why. I'm, I can't just say it. I've got to walk around like this. For three years. Are you kidding. No. Not kidding. And he did it. And that's not the only. I've, I'm oft confused by. In Ezekiel 4. Verse 4 to 6. It says this. He tells him. Lie on your left side. The place. Uh, and I will place punishment on the house of Israel. For the number of days that you lie on it. You shall bear their punishment. I assign you the number of days. 390. So for more than a year, he's got to lay on his left side. That's it. He doesn't get to go anywhere. He has to cook like that. He has to eat like that. He has to sleep like that. Everything else he has to do like that. Then it goes on and says, verse 6, And when you have completed these 390 days laying on your left side, you shall lie a second time on your right side and bear punishment for the house of Judah 40 days. I mean, I, I read that and I just think, if I, you know, I know myself. If, if I'm the prophet, I'm saying, can't I just draw a picture or make a sculpture or something? Why in the world do I have to do that? Uh, so what I'm saying, but what did he do? He did it. And I sit back and say, you know what? These men, the prophets who are commended by God, whatever God commanded, no matter how seemingly unnecessary, how seemingly unwise, how seemingly unreasonable, how seemingly uncomfortable, how practically miserable, they did it. Now, what God calls for us to do it can be a little uncomfortable to, to boldly open up and speak the gospel. Some, for some people, depending on personalities, more uncomfortable than others. God, you know, it doesn't put us always in the most comfortable position to resist temptation, uh, uh, to treat others as more important than ourselves. I mean, at times it's very difficult to live it out. But I'll tell you this. If I listen to the commandments of the New Testament that I'm called to live out, and I compare them to what he said to Isaiah and Ezekiel, yeah, thank you, Lord. 
that I live under the new covenant. Thank you, Lord. I'm not an Old Testament prophet that I have to, have to be that sign that Christ has fulfilled all of those things, and here I am. I just need to step forward and live for him and serve for him and treat him above all else and treat those who are his as more important than myself. How hard is that? And yet, do we still make excuses? Oh, let's move on and, and uh, let's look at the Lord. Now, first thing I want us to see within this, because you always, whenever you study a passage, one of the things in it that you want to take note of is what does this reveal to me about God? Because we should never forget this, although it seems exceedingly forgotten in our day and age. The Bible is God's word. It is God's self-revelation that we might know him and be found in him. It reveals who he is. It reveals his salvation. It reveals his attributes and character. It reveals his power and being. It reveals in a way that far more than can be noted simply observing creation. But even observing creation can set us astounded. What eternal power. What a magnificent being. All these the works of his hands. But then when we understand the eternal purposes of God in Christ set upon his own our minds just begin to blow don't they and he says this uh, when when speaking with Ananias we see first of all the Lord's perfect knowledge and perfect is is a little bit of a soft term here I could say absolute entire all-encompassing unbounding, uninhibited. Uh, but listen, verse 11 and 12. The Lord said to him, to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. <laughs> I love the precision in that. You know, it's not accidental. The, the knowledge of God exactly where we are exactly what's going on you re you remember how astounded uh i think nicodemus was when he came to jesus and he says i saw you when you were under the fig tree what how in the world you know and i'm amazed at those kinds of things but he's not done because he says this what behold he is praying and, and this is, this is, I love this because what's happening is it just also begins to show us something of the ways that God is functioning. God is at this point in time listening and heeding the prayer of Saul while he is instructing and communicating with Ananias, you know? And we think of this, he is at, while at the same time, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. While at the same time, it's not just Paul's prayers, Saul's prayers, that he's listening to, is it? And so if we ever, whenever we step back for just a moment and we start to think about the wisdom of God, he not only knows exactly what Saul's background is, how does he already know this? He just met him on the road to, really? He didn't just meet him on the road to Damascus. He set him apart before his mother's womb. He's going to later say he knows him. 
And, he, and the, the details he gives, we're like sitting back saying, wow, he knows all of that. But he knows way more than that. He even knows the number of hairs on his head as he sits there. You know, he, he knows secret details of, of birthmarks and scars and whatever it may be. He knows it all. And you, no, don't take that lightly. And he goes on to say this. I love this. In, in verse 12, what God had been pleased even to reveal, reveal. He's telling these details about Saul to Ananias. And he's told Saul these details uh, about Ananias. So Ananias knows about Saul. Saul knows about Ananias. Verse 12, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So all of this is happening. Well, and you might ask yourself this question, but what if, is that a little presumptuous on God's behalf? What if Ananias says no? <laughs> I mean, well, does God not have the power to change the heart? Ananias is indeed reluctant, but God is not bound by men's reluctance, hesitance, reticence. He's not, it doesn't hold him off at all. Actually, God does all that he pleases in the highest of heaven, the earth, and in all of the deeps. He can not only change hearts, we, we, we think, well, how can he be so sure he's going to change Ananias' heart? And by the way, how many Ananiases are there in Damascus? No, it's this specific guy who's going to go there and get it done. And don't be amazed at the confidence that God can bring him to do so. The change of heart he's already wrought in Saul is even more astounding. <laughs> But this is, and the details of what is going to happen. What a remarkable sense of this. Can anyone hide anything from the Lord? Isaiah 29 says this. Ah, oh, verse 15. Ah, oh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. <laughs> Shall the potter be regarded as the clay. That thing that's made should say to its maker, he did not make me, or the thing that's formed say of it, he has no understanding. You don't get it. There's no secrets from God. There's no hidden things from God. There's nothing that's too hard for him. There's nothing too difficult for him. There's nothing impossible for him. There may be things, and there are a lot of things that are impossible for men. But even those things that are impossible for men are possible with God. Can God take the chiefest of sinners? Yeah. I, sometimes when you read those lists of things where Paul is speaking about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Idolaters, coveters, greeds. And then he speaks of adultery, homosexuality, murder. He speaks of all of these things. And then he goes on to say this. But such were some of you. <laughs> and then he what? He washed you. He saved you. He changed you. Can God change the heart of murderers? Can God change the hearts of those who live lives of rampant immorality? 
to a life devoted to purity? Can he do that? Can he turn perversion to purity? Yes, he can. That is the grace of God. And he's not bound by, by but, they're, but they're bound in their trespasses and sin. They're dead in it. They're captive to it. Yeah, and who sets the captors free? Who raises those from the dead? While they were dead, he made them alive in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a Lord. Jeremiah 23 verse 24 says this. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. And I've heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my names. I have dreamed. I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? He knows their motives. He knows their words. He knows their hearts. Nothing is hidden from him. He's God. Not only is he God in his perfect omniscience, his perfect and complete knowledge, but what's remarkable in all of that, his patience. Because look what it, we, see, we see in verse 15. We remember who Saul was. He approved of the murder of Stephen. He himself was attacking and brutalizing and imprisoning Christians. And it says this, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, having even been told, uh, reminded of all the evil that he had done, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What you see as unworthy and disqualified actually is everybody is unworthy and disqualified. Just wake up and see it. But I have a purpose for him. And, and, and so we see God's patience, one, with Saul. He didn't squish him when he was persecuting, but he met him and saved him. And not only saved him, but one who had proven uh, so unworthy, he establishes him and then appoints him to apostleship. Ooh. And not only was, do we see God's patience with um, Saul, but we see God's patience with Ananias. In verse 17, it says, um, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him. Now, the patience is this. Ananias made an excuse, right? And God didn't say, all right, you lose. I'm sending another. God still sent him. Because I'll tell you this. We're, we may strive our best. We will not be perfect. We'll still stumble. We'll still fall. Will still make mistakes. Even the seeming best of us. And I say seeming. Because we only see the surface. God sees the heart. Sometimes we may see that, find out. When all is said and done. The seeming best of us were the worst of us. And the seeming worst of us. Was kind of the average guy. Not only that. that um, so the Lord is patient. We're reminded of that. It tells us this. When, when God showed his glory. Uh, to Moses, and it's stated again in, in uh, uh, Deuteronomy. He come and he, his glory passes before Moses. He puts his hand over him. It, he says these beautiful words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Amen. Slow to anger. I'm so thankful and you ought to be thankful for God's patience towards us. But remember, that's not the end of it. A lot of people like to stop reading there. It says he will by no means clear the guilty. 
All right, so those who, uh, those, who, those who turn from their sin and continue to at times stumble, but by the grace of God are upheld and, and, and continue on the path, those are very different than those who embrace their sin and own their sin and are captive to it. They are, ought not hope. Third thing I want us to see of the Lord is the Lord's purpose and painful calling. So we've seen the Lord's perfect knowledge, the Lord's patient kindness, and the Lord's purpose and painful calling. Verse 16 says this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Hold on a second. <laughs> You're not going to show him how many churches he's going to plant. You're not going to show him all of the success he will have. You're not going to show him the conversions that will take. You're going to tell him, well, that's not a good sell. I mean, if you're trying to get him to serve you, shouldn't you tell him you're going to get to travel? You're going to, get, you're going to be appreciated. You're going to be honored. You're... No, this is what you need to do. Tell him God has determined for you pain. And following that, persecution. Along with that, problems. Lump that in with a little bit more pain. Because this is what it's going to be. You're going to be stoned. Riots are going to break out. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be shipwrecked. You're going to be beaten. And not just once. Repeatedly, you're going to be lashed brutally. Exposure. Sleepless nights. And what's Saul supposed to say? Sign me up. Well, the reality is he realizes what? It's not a matter of sign me up or don't sign me up. He is Lord. I mean, he is Lord. Whatever he wants. He, he's, he's risen from the dead. He's ascended at the Father. He, he's the Son of God. Whatever he wants. It, it, it's not open to negotiation. It's not open to, to, to whether or not it, it, it's what I want. It's all about what he wants. I count my life as nothing for myself, but only that I may fulfill the ministry that he has appointed to me. We may be regarded, as he would say, the apostles are regarded as the last of all, dishonored. But that's all right. We don't seek to please men. We don't seek our commendation from men. Our commendation and pleasure comes from the Lord. Now let us look in closing at Brother Saul. Now, since we take up Saul again next week, Saul is just a brief little snapshot today. And the first thing I just, just want to remind you of this is that Saul, I love when Ananias gets there, he refers to him like this, Brother Saul. Little understanding is dawned upon him, right? He gets it. He has come there because God clearly explained it to him. He's, gonna not, he's come not only that he will see, but that he will be filled with the Spirit and he's going to be told of the difficult calling that God has appointed to him. He knows that like him, this man is a fellow servant of God. Brother Saul. <laughs> he gets it. And it says this in uh, verse uh, 8 and 9. Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. They led him by hand and brought him into Damascus for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. The first thing that he, Brother Saul experienced when he mes, met Christ was dependent 
desperate days. The second thing we see in this passage is he, he's gone from somebody who had a, a strong self-assurance to a strong necessary dependence. We see him going from persecutor to prayer. In verse 11 it says, And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street, for behold, he is praying. Why was he going to Damascus? To persecute all those who held the name of Christ. What's he doing in Damascus? He's praying. In the name of the very one that he came against. There's a sense in which we see that he has a vision of renewed vision. He is blind, but in his blindness, he sees a vision, which starts to get a little loopy. But it, and, and this man comes, and when he lays his hands on him and prays, what happens? Something like scales fall from his eyes. I mean, that's the reality of, ha of what happens when God, by the power of his spirit, reveals Christ to us. We were blind, but now we see. We were deaf, but now we hear. We were lame, but now we rise up and walk and rejoice and run the race that is set before us. Because all of the grace of God brings complete transformation. But what I like about this is... How much of this did Saul do himself? Saul didn't approach the Lord himself. The Lord approached him. On those events that followed, Saul didn't go into Damascus. He was led there. Saul couldn't feed himself. Saul was praying, but he couldn't help himself to see. In everything, he was utterly dependent on God. Oh, brothers and sisters, know that about your salvation. But please don't stop there. Right now, this very day, even though you are saved, you and I are utterly dependent on God. In him, we live and move, breathe, and have our being. Apart from him, we can do nothing, not even breathe. Even those things we do that our bodies do without thinking, because I don't necessarily keep my heart beating. I don't put a whole lot of thought into that. It just goes on. But does it just go on by itself? Does it just go on? Oh, it, just, it goes on because you're alive. But how am I alive? Everything, every moment in utter dependence upon God. And we see from a blasphemer to baptize. In 1 Timothy 1.13, it says, Formerly I was a blasphemer. And now it says at the end of verse 18, He arose and was baptized. He blasphemed the name and now he's baptized into the name. What do you know? And then we see from dead set on destruction to devoted disciple. What does it say in uh, 19? Taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. He had gone there to oppose them and destroy them. Now he's one among them with brotherliness, camaraderie. Mutual encouragement and mutual service. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so amazed at what your word reveals to us 
in this passage. Lord, when we see the disciples' readiness, reluctance, and response, we see so many of our own circumstances in that. And we ask, O oh God, that we would be faithful to consider your word and the clear things that you would have us do and that you would help us to boldly step forward in faithful response. Lord, remove our reluctance. Increase our readiness. Lord, we thank you also for your self-revelation in this passage of your perfect knowledge, your patient kindness, and your purposes that often involve persecution and pain. But Lord, your ways are better than our ways and your thoughts are better than our thoughts. Lord, we thank you for the revelation also of your power in Saul, that you would make him an apostle. You would show him his absolute dependence. You would transform him from a persecutor to a prayer, a blasphemer to be baptized. You would make him a disciple and you would use him for your glory. Lord, we also recognize that we by our own natures are unworthy and undeserving, but you are glorious. God, we would ask that you would help us in our hearts and minds to see you as before all, better than all, and above all. Lord, that we would not fix our eyes on this world and this life or upon ourselves or even those wonderful people you've put in our lives. But you first and foremost. And all of the relationships in our lives, um, avenues in which we can bring you praise and glory and honor. Lord, we just pray that you would be with us. That even as we consider that you would be our highest vision, our highest value. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to work these things in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.